Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Snafu. Please visit our website and our Patreon page for bonus content such as pictures and profiles of all the characters mentioned in today's episode, maps of the airfield, Q&A episodes, and much, much more. This podcast contains explicit content that may not be suitable for some audience members. Listener's discretion is advised. The Plain Chiefs, which was piloted by the 530th Squadron Commander, Captain Robert Dearborn, a 25-year-old heartthrob from Bedford, Indiana, was taxiing back to its hard stand after leading a successful sortie to a German airfield and transport depot in Conscious, France. Among Dearborn and his crew of chiefs was Lieutenant Bill Rausch of Paper Doll, although he and his crew were flying in hellfire from above while their plane was getting repairs done. The other members of the mission were Captain Anthony McCormick, or as he was known as Texas, in his plane, Texas with Love, Lieutenant Walter Hillhouse of Deuces, Lieutenant Joe Brolin of Hailing Mary, and finally, Lieutenant Timothy Parnell and his crew of Fenway Bombshell, who just completed their first mission. The mission had the formation close to the Nazi-occupied Paris, and due to that, the formation of 219 planes faced light levels of flak, but it got swarmed by fighters. Chiefs returned back to its hard stand, with half of their right horizontal stabilizer missing, along with the right elevator. Bullet holes riddled the vertical stabilizer and rudder, but besides that, the plane didn't suffer any additional damage. The 300th remarkably returned without a single casualty, although Fenway's tail gunner did suffer a mild case of frostbite while returning home from France. Captain Dearborn cut the engines to his B-17F, with now 17 missions under its belt. Although the captain and most of his crew had only completed 12 or less missions as of today. Today, sitting in the co-pilot seat with Captain Dearborn was the boss, who was subbing for Dearborn's co-pilot. Most of the mission, Dearborn was more than willing to let the boss prove himself in the pilot seat and was impressed with him. Even though the boss was the most inexperienced member of his crew, he led like it was his own crew that he had flown with a dozen or so missions with. It wasn't just Robert Dearborn who was impressed with the boss and took an instant liking to him, but so did the other officers and enlisted men of the crew. As the sound of engine dissipated, Dearborn looked over at the boss and said, You know, I gotta say, you fly like you know what you're doing. If you don't mind, I'd like to sing your praises to Colonel Poole. Oh, I'm, I'm flattered. Sure, thank you, the boss said in disbelief. Don't mention it. Dearborn said as he got out of his seat and began heading down the hatch. Outside the plane, the boss was met with swarms of other officers who were there to welcome their squadron commander as well as the boss. At the debriefing hut, the boss and the rest of the crew of chiefs had finished being interrogated and were now leaving the hut. Outside the hut, the boss was making conversation with the navigator and bombardier of chiefs and the three men stood just off to the side of the building. The boss noticed off in the distance that Colonel Poole was walking towards the debriefing hut and was approached by Captain Dearborn, and the boss couldn't help but notice that Dearborn kept pointing to the boss as he talked to Colonel Poole. A smile cracked over the boss's face as he finally felt like he was being recognized for the good leader he knew he was. 
Wednesday afternoon, March 22nd, 1944. United States Army Air Force Station 186, Thurlow, England, 1300 hours. Jack was sitting in Timothy Parnell's hut on the base, along with his three crew members, Adam Brooks, Nicholas Carnegie, and George Grant. Joining them was Joe Brolin's crew members, Bill O'Brien, Thomas Sheila, and Joseph Coca Salas, and the four officers from Bob McGee. Over the last 24 hours, Parnell, like the boss, had made himself quite known all over the base, and impressively won the respect of Bob McGee's pilot, First Lieutenant Richard Leslie. And with him, the other three officers warmed up to Parnell and his crew. Since Parnell was relentless with involving Jack in just about anything he did, Jack had become fond and friendly with the men of Bob McGee, and jumped at the chance to get out of his hut with the still-conflicted Rosie and altered boss. Richard Leslie was somewhat of a celebrity on the base, since he had completed the most missions in the 300th Bombardment Group, with 20 missions completed. Even with this accomplishment, what shocked most people was, he looked remarkably young. The 22-year-old pilot was from Tulsa, Oklahoma, and had a cynical nature to him, but was almost always able to get a good laugh with the cynicism. He had bushy black hair, stood at 5 foot 8 inches tall, and was athletically built. This was due to the fact that he was heavily involved in wrestling, track, and football when he was in high school. He and Jack had a lengthy conversation on high school football the previous night at the officers club. Leslie's co-pilot was by far the most charismatic member of Leslie's crew. 22-year-old Eris Deal of Los Angeles, California was dark-skinned, had perfect combed dark hair, and looked like he could pass for a 30-year-old. Leslie's navigator, 23-year-old Micah Jones of Washington, D.C., was the most quiet member of Leslie's crew. He went by the nickname of Moose due to his long, bony face and long nose. He had short, dark, curly hair and also had one of the deepest voices of anyone on the base. Moose was just behind Leslie in having the most missions completed with 19 missions and was proud of it. Finally, Leslie's bombardier, Luke Roebuck, was a bright-faced, big-eared kid from Dayton, Ohio, who was close friends with Joe Brolin and O'Brien as he had painted their nose art on the back of their leather jackets. The men were all sitting around a round table, with some using foot lockers in the chairs from their huts next door. The tabletop was littered with cards, British shillings which were being used as poker chips, coffee mugs, and other personal effects. A record player was playing a compilation record off in the back of the hut. The song currently playing was Nat King Cole's song, Nature Boy, which Coca was mouthing the words and humming as he looked at his cards. I tell you what, O'Brien, you've officially lost your right to be a dealer. Never again, Adam fired. I agree. Every time someone else deals, I at least get one good card. But as soon as his fucking ginger fingers touches the deck, I get nothing every single fucking time. Coca added. Well, did you ever think that maybe, perhaps, it's because you have shitty luck every now and then again? O'Brien countered. Yeah, plus, don't gingers bring good luck? Grant asked. Stop calling me a ginger, okay? We get it. I have red hair. Move on, defended O'Brien. That's true, Grant. He is 100% Irish. Probably inbred. But yeah, redheads are supposed to be lucky, Sheila added. 
Inbred? Okay, if anyone's family tree lacks branches, it's Mr. Virginia over there. O'Brien fired, referring to Grant. It would definitely explain a lot. Like that thing on your neck that resembles an Adam's apple. Parnell joked. This is my Adam's apple, Grant defended. No, this is an Adam's apple. That looks like you just swallowed a stone, Moose said, lifting up his own chin and pointing to his Adam's apple. You know, Moose, I'm just now realizing that you've got yourself a big old stone in your throat, too, pointed out Joe. That's true. Actually, I think yours is bigger than Grant's, Adam said, leaning forward and comparing the two men's Adam's apples. That's not the only thing bigger than Grant's, Moose fired. Yeah, ego, Leslie added as he began lighting up another cigarette. You know, speaking of ego, Jack, your pilot, his ego is about to bloat over the next few days, Eris commented. What do you mean? Jack asked. Yeah, I ran into Captain Dearborn today, and I asked him how the hotshot pilot did flying with him, and he said he was impressed with him, and he sang his praises to Colonel Poole, Eris explained, just as he put his cigarette in the ashtray. Parnell spoke up by sharing his point of view. Oh, that's great. That's what that guy needs. You got a problem with the boss, Parnell? Asked Joe. Yeah, I don't like him. Who the fuck gives themselves the nickname The Boss and refers to him as such? I agree, Leslie said, reaching into his pocket and grabbing a new pack of cigarettes, and then finished his thoughts by saying, I've seen a lot of pilots come and go since we've been here in November, and I can say this, that he's running out his clock quickly. Running out his clock? Jack asked. Yeah, he has this weird theory, Moose added. But has he been wrong, though? Roebuck joked with a large smile on his face. Well, let's hear it, Parnell said, putting his cards down. Okay, so, you guys have heard of a thing called karma, right? Leslie asked the group. Of course, Jack commented, as he was incredibly interested in what Leslie had to say. Okay, so in my version, that I pretty much stole from my Baptist preaching father is, God can't tolerate pride, since it's the sin that, you know, all other sins are birthed from, or whatever the quote is. Yeah, pride is the mother pregnant of all other sins, Jack added, quoting Augustine. The men all paused and looked at Jack, to which Jack replied, St. Augustine, no? The men all still stared at him, and that's when Jack responded with, I was a lit major in school. Oh, okay, alright, that makes sense, were some of the responses that Jack got. Alright, so it's kind of like karma, but if someone has a glorified view of themselves, or has an inflated view of their accomplishments, then to balance that out, God has to make that person a witness whenever he humbles them. The more prideful the person is, the bigger the humiliation needs to be. And since God is a gracious God, he puts a timer when these events are going to happen. If the person says things or does things that are more and more prideful, that clock ticks faster. And have you seen this play out? Adam asked. Well, there was this one pilot that we had a couple months ago. He was our squadron commander for a little bit. He labeled himself the best pilot in the 300th and maybe even possibly the 8th. He even, get this, he painted the words, the one Hitler fears on the top of his jacket, Leslie said with a huge disbelief smile on his face as he told the story. He's not lying. That man was cocky as hell, Moose added as he picked the stubble on his chin. And his bombardier was just as bad, Roebuck added. What happened to them? O'Brien asked. Their plane collided with another plane over the rally point after bombing some rail yard in Belgium, Leslie answered. 
Oh, and the best part was, they missed the target too. Missed it by like two miles, Eris answered. I mean, look at Griffith, said Sheila before quickly getting interrupted. Don't you dare talk about Griffith. He was a good fucking kid. Coco fired, referring to their old bunkmate and former squadron commander. I'm not. I just, I'm just saying. It makes you wonder. We all know that he was extremely cocky, Sheila added. There's one problem with your theory there, Leslie, Joe brought up. Just as many humble people get killed in awful ways as prideful pricks. So what the hell did they do to deserve that? That's a good question. I, I don't know, Leslie answered. It's not much of a theory if you haven't thought it all the way out, Parnell added. Yeah, I don't know much about that theory, but as a Lutheran boy, I can tell you that I don't believe in karma, and I don't think that's how the world works, Jack addressed. Well, since we're being total assholes and talking about your chief like you're not in the room with us, I have to ask, from your vantage point, what's he like? O'Brien asked. Jack paused for a moment and thought about what he wanted to say. He's human. You know, he's a good chief. That's There's a reason why Captain Dearborn sang his praises. We're not questioning his abilities, Jack. We're saying that he's an arrogant prick, Parnell said. Right, I mean, you have to see that, right? Joe added. Jack sat for a few more moments, lit up another cigarette, and replied, Honestly, I don't... I don't see how he's any more prideful than any of us sitting here. Now that's not what I was expecting, Joe replied with a smirk on his face. Nice one, buddy. I can read people like a book. You're lying, Leslie commented. Alright guys, lay off the poor guy, okay? For God's sakes. Eris defended, suddenly becoming the new target of banter and punchline jokes. As the men joked and poked fun at Eris, Jack listened and didn't say anything further. He honestly still respected the boss, and a part of him believed that there was some truth to what the men were saying about him. However, Jack was getting tired of talking about it and thinking about it. He felt that it was time to just walk up to the boss and just duke out whatever ill feelings he had towards him, and vice versa. Now, if only Rosie could help back him up. Next door, Rosie was lying on his bed, looking up at the ceiling. He was still recovering from his awful hangover from the night before. He had hoped that his headache, stomachache, and muscles would stop hurting by lunchtime, but the pain and discomfort still continued. Suddenly, the door of the hut flew open, much to Rosie's surprise. Looking up, Rosie was shocked to see that it was Andy. Andy? Rosie asked. It's good to see you, Rosie. You miss me? Andy asked with a large smile on his face. I did for a minute. Rosie said, laying his head back down. A minute? When? Andy asked. Just before you walked in? Rosie answered. Is that a joke? Yes, Andy. That was a joke. How you feeling? Better. Still a little sore, but it's just so weird. They told me yesterday that I had at least one more week to recover. Then they released me and a bunch of other guys today, all at the same time. That is strange. I wonder if they were just that desperate for bodies. Could be. The hospital was at capacity when I got out. Anyways, I don't care to be honest. They didn't have to tell me twice to not be there. Is it bad there? Sadly, it is. The days dragged on, the place is cold at night, hot during the day, and the new nurse they have is just a fucking asshole. 
well, let's just hope I never end up there. Yeah, trust me, you don't want to go there. Say, where is everyone? Andy asked, looking around the hut. Jack's next door playing cards, and the boss is at Hill House's hut, or at least that's where he was a few hours ago. You can go check there. Okay, I'll do that. You okay? You don't look good. I'm just, just feeling a little bit under the weather. I'll be fine, though, Rosie responded. Okay, we'll rest up, Andy said as he headed out the door and left the hut. Do you want to get more out of Snafu? Well, guess what? There's good news for you because you can. You see, by visiting our website, www.snafupod.net, you can find all kinds of amazing free resources to help you know more about the Aether Force in World War II and about the B-17 Flying Fortress. Right now, you can take a virtual tour of two real B-17s like the one depicted in Snafu. Also, you can find links to movies, documentaries, free YouTube videos, and so much more. All you have to do is visit www.snafupod.net and check it out for yourself. Now, back to the podcast. Hill House in Texas's hut was packed with officers who were drinking Irish coffee, smoking cigarettes, and some were playing their own game of cards. Sitting around the round table was Hillhouse, Benson, Nebo, Texas, Shelby, and the boss. Lieutenant Shelby's co-pilot and navigator were both outside with Texas's co-pilot, Mueller, and his bombardier, Shoot, which Shelby had just explained to the boss that he was quite alright with that since his co-pilot and navigator were, in his words, both cut from different cloths than he was, intended to not hang out with them. People like the boss was able to sympathize with us. The boss was in the middle of explaining his frustrations with Jack and Rosie to Shelby and the others. Hillhouse in Texas had a hard time relating to what the boss was expressing because for the most part, they loved the crew members and had no reason to doubt them. You see, you don't understand. When shit hits the fan, Jack just sits there and he looks to me rather than just taking action, the boss said. But that's, that's his job though. I don't know why you expect more from him, Hillhouse fired. What if something happened to me, Hillhouse? I don't believe that he could lead the men and do what needed to be done to get them home, the boss further defended. He's your co-pilot. As long as you're in the pilot seat, he's going to look to you for help and guidance, Hillhouse fired back, cutting off both Benson and Texas, who were trying to share their own thoughts. Texas waited until Hillhouse was done and then laid out what he wanted to say. Your biggest problem, Anthony, is you want an experienced crew like the one you were with today. Men who know what they're doing and know how to handle themselves in the sky. Please don't call me Anthony, the boss butted in. What is your name? I'm not going to call you boss, okay? I'm going to call you by the name that your mother gave you and refers to you as. So, the thing is, Anthony, the only reason why those guys were able to be like that is because they've flown in the shit enough times to know what to expect and what to do. Your guys haven't. They've flown, what, two missions? Yeah. The boss replied. Okay, so stop whining and help your men become the men that you want them and expect them to be, Texas said. Yeah, what he said. Nemo butted in, which soon got a chuckle from Hill House. But their immaturity and mistakes could cost lives, the boss countered. When you came to pilot training, I didn't expect you to be doing barrel rolls and recoveries on your first day. If I did, you would have for sure killed yourself and the other people. I got into the cockpit with you, 
and taught you how to do that at the risk of my own life, Texas explained. Not to mention, you giving your radio man that much work, Benson butted in, was the recipe for disaster. That was his first time being in combat. That was his first time seeing his buddy get shot up. Probably his first time he had ever saw that much horror done to the human body. That day for him was a day of firsts, and his chief and leader was telling him to take the most detailed notes I have ever seen someone take while getting shot at and having to defend his plane and his buddies from incoming attacks. By the time you had him watching over your gunner, his brain was fried. The boss didn't say anything. He just stared at the center of the table, feeling frustrated that nobody was seeing his point. Think on that. Rule of thumb is, fear always causes itself to come true. Hillhouse commented. What do you mean? The boss asked. Yeah, philosopher, would you care to enlighten us? Shelby asked. Okay. So, have you ever realized that people who fear being alone will often drive people crazy to the point where no one wants to be around them? In almost every case, if you think hard enough, whatever your biggest fear is, fear has made you live in such a way that it causes your fear to come true, said Hillhouse. I need to have a crippling fear of busty blonde women, joked Benson. <laughs> so, okay, so how does this apply to me, Hillhouse? The boss asked. If you fear that your crew's inexperience and inability to do their jobs to your liking will cause a loss of life, that will cause them to make mistakes under pressure and will cause them to make mistakes that could potentially cost the lives of people you're trying to save. I see, the boss remarked. You can't be in control of everything, especially in war, Hillhouse finished. But you can't be soft on your men and be careless in what you do, the boss said, pausing to capture his next thought as he was now starting to feel passionate towards the topic at hand. See, that's how I know what you're doing is a disservice to your men. Hillhouse fired, quickly triggering the boss. Disservice? The boss shot back. Let me finish. If you think we're saying that you need to be soft on your men and not take any precautions, then that's how you know you've got an unhealthy obsession with trying to be in control of your destiny and the destiny and the outcome of the people who are around you. If something is an all or nothing thing to you, then you essentially are a slave to that fear. Hillhouse countered. What the hell are you talking about? A slave to my... Let me guess, you took one single philosophy course, and now you think you're some wise old philosopher, accused the boss. No, Anthony, listen to what he's saying. It's true. Ask any experienced pilot on this base if what he's saying is true, and they'll tell you, explained Texas. The boss took in a deep breath, looked back down at the center of the table, and didn't say anything further. He's right. Take it from me, Leslie commented. Let me ask you this, Hellas began to say. Actually... I have to get back to my hut, the boss said, looking down at his watch. No, you don't. You just don't want to talk about this. You're sick of us telling you something that you don't want to hear. Hillhouse thundered as the boss stood up and grabbed his leather jacket, which was sitting on the back of his chair. Oh, now you're a mind reader. Awesome. Thanks, guys, for a great time. Appreciate it, the boss said before he walked out of the hut, hearing more thunderous comments from Hillhouse in Texas as he did. Later that night, as the sun was settling under the horizon, the men were headed to a little British village known as Newmarket, which was nine miles northwest of Thurlow. This little village was known to have a total of three pubs in its small, dense area. For men like Jack, this was an opportunity to explore the new area, and he had a group of men with him who were more than willing to explore. Sitting in the troop truck with him was Parnell, Adam, Nick, and the men from Hailing Mary. Rosie didn't want to go out tonight, 
but instead wanted to drink at the near-empty officers club with Parnell's bombardier, Grant, who Rosie had befriended earlier that day. Andy, who Jack had spent time with earlier, was in a different troop truck with Appleton and Appleton's friends. In the same troop truck with Andy and Appleton was the boss and the men from Captain Kids and Georgia Bell. Jack's interactions with the boss that day, the few that he had, were loaded with tension. And Jack honestly wanted nothing to do with his pilot, as he was still wrestling with feelings of betrayal and disappointment. Parnell's words, along with everybody else's, had settled into his psyche. Sitting next to Jack on the wooden bench was Parnell, who had in his hands a bottle of scotch that Coca had snubbed from the officers club earlier that day. Word had gotten out about the stolen bottle, and Coca ordered everyone in the truck to keep their mouth shut, and in exchange for their silence, he would offer them a drink. Nobody objected to this deal. Parnell took a huge sip, closed his eyes, gritted his teeth, and passed the bottle over to Jack. Jack took the bottle, held it up to his mouth, and took in a huge gulp. Even though the beverage smelled like rubbing alcohol, and for the most part tasted like it, the burning sensation and the sudden feeling of warmth brought a surprising level of comfort to him. Jack then handed the bottle to Nick, who was sitting across from him. You ready for tonight? Parnell asked. Ready? Yep. Ready for what? Parnell gave Jack a half-cocked smile and said, For the best night of your life. Jack looked confused and Parnell found Jack's reaction rather humorous. <laughs> Jesus fucking Christ, kid. Can you stop looking like an ear of corn? Coca yelled out to Jack. Yeah, that pilot of yours has you all wound up. Joe remarked. Wound up? Jack asked. Yeah, like a child who has an overprotective Catholic mother. Trust me, I was one of those. O'Brien added. Parnell threw his arm around Jack's neck and shoulders and said to him, I'm guessing you've never been drunk before. Jack nodded his head and replied, I've been drunk before. Bullshit, Nick yelled out with an honorary smile on his face. I swear to you, I have. I'm not talking buzzed, where you still have your wits to you. I'm talking about full-fledged, piss-ass drunk, where you don't give a damn about anything. Parnell explained, with Sheila adding by saying, Yeah, we're in here in such a, a, a fuck-all mood, that all you want to do is just start a fight just for the hell of it. Jack looked utterly petrified at how the men were talking, and that emotion was visible on Jack's face. Joe, Coca, and Parnell again found Jack's reaction humorous. Don't worry, Louie. We know what we're doing. You've got one light to live, and God knows for how long, and you're spending it with a stick up your ass and your lips puckered on your bosses, Parnell said, puckering his lips and making kissing sound effects. What the hell are you talking about? Jack asked, throwing Parnell's arms off his shoulder. Don't act like that. You know we know. Your pilot is an ass, and you're letting him get to you. Your moon-faced bombardier's losing his mind over it, and you will too if you don't blow off some steam. Parnell explained. I just don't see how what we're going to be doing tonight is any different than what we've done in pubs or the officers club. Jack asked. Do you know where we're headed, Louie? Adam asked. Somewhat, Jack said after drawing a blank on the name of the town that they were headed to. Right. This is a new place, a new day, and it's a beautiful fucking day. Coca finished. Look, gentlemen, I'm all for drinking at the pub and walking around exploring the new town, but... Louie, stop talking. Just smile and enjoy yourself. 
Here, take some more sips of this. Joe said, handing Jack the bottle of scotch again for him to take a drink. Jack was hesitant on doing so, but felt like the humiliation would only continue or get worse if he didn't. So he took another large sip, and after he did, the men cheered, making light of the moment. Jack, however, had no idea what awaited him for the rest of the night. Do you want to get more out of Snafu? Well, guess what? There's good news for you because you can. You see, by becoming a supporter of the podcast, you will receive bonus content such as pictures and profiles of all the characters mentioned in today's episode, as well as pictures and maps of the airfield and surrounding areas, formation breakdowns of past, present, and future missions, as well as Q&A episodes and behind-the-scenes episodes. There is so much for you to gain by donating $3 or $10 to help support the podcast. If you would like to be a part of Snafu each week, please visit our Patreon page. The link for that's down in the show notes. Any support goes a long way in helping the podcast to continue. Thank you to all of those who are already subscribed and are currently supporting this podcast. Your contribution is making a difference. We greatly appreciate it. Now, back to the podcast. Willie, Tommy, Skimpy, Beans, Mills, and Pally were sitting inside bird in hand, each with a beer in their hands. Skimpy was joined by Emma, who currently was sitting at the long wooden table with the men of Skimpy's crew. The men were awaiting the arrival of Emma's cousin, who used to live in London, but recently moved with Emma after their house had been leveled during a night bombing a few days previous. Willie had just finished recounting the story about his first kill, as well as Beans's, to Emma, much to Beans's eternal lament, but he knew why he was doing it. Only Willie knew about the internal conflict Beans was experiencing, and that was because Willie himself had the same feelings. Beans was smart enough to realize that what Willie was doing was he was hiding his true feelings by talking about his experience freely, like it meant nothing to him, but just pure catharsis. The three pints of beer that he had consumed so far were only fueling his storytelling. Emma was shocked by the story, as she had never met anyone who killed a German before. Her father never served in war, and she didn't have any brothers, and all male cousins that she had hadn't seen combat. Emma listened to every word Willie spoke, as he went into grave detail about what it was like seeing bullets hit a plane. Emma's interest only drove Willie to talk more with passion. Skippy at one point felt that the interaction between the two was getting uncomfortable and broke up the conversation, saying that he wanted to talk about something not related to war or the Germans. Tommy proposed that the men get another round of drinks and play a game that he and Willie had come up with in order to break the ice when Emma's cousin showed up. The men agreed, and even Emma seemed eager to play this new game. Tommy then got up and was accompanied by Mills and Pally, who offered to help Tommy carry the drinks back. Once up at the bar, Tommy asked the old scruffy-faced bartender, Egbert, could we get six glasses of your strongest, nastiest liquor that you have? I mean, like, American nasty. In other words, whatever you Brits think is good, give us double shots of that, Mills added. The old man behind the bar snarled at the men and began filling the order. Is that really his name, Egbert? Pally asked. What? No, I don't know. Sure does seem like an Egbert now that I think about it. Why don't we ask him? Declared Tommy. Turning around, Tommy asked, Hey Egbert, what's your name? The old man lifted up his head, 
raised his eyebrow, and with a gargled English accent, said that his name was in fact not Egbert, but Godfrey. Godfrey? Damn, you don't look like a Godfrey. Can I call you Egbert instead? Tommy asked, much to Godfrey's offense. Godfrey replied that he absolutely could not call him by that, and told him that if he ever wanted to have another drink at his pub, he better shut his mouth and stop bothering him. Unbelievably, this wasn't the first time Godfrey had told Tommy or his crewmates this. Tommy smiled, winked at the old man, and said, You got it, bub. You're in a pretty good mood tonight, Tommy, Mills remarked. I'm always in a good mood. Tommy responded, Not always. You got something up your sleeve. Is this about Emma's cousin? Mills asked. What, Emma's who? I have no idea about this cousin that you speak of. Funny, Tommy. You seriously think you're going to shag the cousin of Skimpy's first and probably only babe? Willie already poked his way into her family tree with their sister. I'm shocked that she's still even bringing in another female anywhere near us. Well, first of all, that wasn't her sister. That was her friend. And clearly, not that good of a friend if she left Emma to go bop Willie. Maybe she warned her and she prepared her, Pally suggested. Fellas, she wouldn't be inviting her if she didn't want her to experience the good old Yankee Doodle, Tommy said with a smirk on his face. There was a moment of pause among the men as Mills looked at Pally with a look of utter confusion and then looked back at Tommy and said, yeah, her cousin will be safe from being yanked up tonight. Minutes later, the three men returned back to the table with glasses for each person. Skimpy smelled his glass and recoiled at it, saying, Oh my god, what the hell is that? That, my friend, is what we call back home varnish remover. But here, the Brits call it a drink, Mills commented. Just then, Emma's cousin entered into the pub. She was tall, brunette, wore black heels, a red and black dress, and a streak of shoe polish going down each leg, giving off the illusion that she was wearing nylon stockings. Her name was Evelyn, and she took the empty seat next to Willie and across from Emma. After Evelyn and Emma made small talk, Emma, with the help of Skimpy, introduced the men. Willie never let his eyes leave the glorious woman, and was stunned beyond words as he marveled at her. Emma then explained to Evelyn that the boys had a game planned for them to play in order to get everyone acquainted with one another. Evelyn, while acting quiet and shy, agreed and then noticed Willie's beaming glares. She smiled awkwardly back. Okay, so how do you play this game? Skibby asked as Emma smelled her glass and recoiled from it too. Okay, so this game goes like this. You know what, Willie? It's your creation. Why don't you explain it? Tommy said. Well, thank you, sure. So the game goes like this. Uh, the person next to you, let's just say to the right of you, asks you a question. You have two choices. You can either tell the truth or you could take a drink. It's simple if you ask me. Much like its creator. Mills joked. Yeah, you son of a bitch. Okay, good one. Anyways, here, I'll go first. Pally, since you're sitting next to me, ask me a question. Willie said, looking to Pally. Pally thought for a moment and then asked, have you ever went a day without smoking a cigar? Willie didn't even let Pally finish his sentence before Willie answered with, Someday, and then looked to Evelyn and asked, My turn, you were virgin, which prompted Beans to spit out his drink in shock. Back in Newmarket, 
The night was in full swing. Jack, Parnell, Adam, Nick, O'Brien, and Sheila were huddled around a table to the left of a large fireplace, and they were cheering Jack on with drinks in their hands. Jack was finishing his fifth pint of beer, which Parnell personally invested his own money into Jack's pure pressure field bender. As Jack finished his drink, he then sat the glass down on the table, and Parnell patted him on the back. No, no more, please. No more, Jack said as he wiped his lips. Now oh, come on, Jack, you're at five. That's like halfway to ten, Adam said, much to Jack's horror. Yeah, you gotta keep going. You still have that scared, shitless look in your eye, said Sheila. Listen, I like you guys, but I don't think I can drink anymore, Jack commented. That's bullshit. You can drink until you puke, and then after that, you can drink more because you made room, Parnell countered. You know what, here, you've been covering this tab this entire time, Parnell. I'll take it from here. Let me get him two more. Plus, I need one. And excited O'Brien declared before he began walking away from the table and towards the bar. Soon, Adam joined him to bring back the drinks for everyone at the table. It had been 40 minutes into the night, and Evelyn had since moved her seat next to Mills, since he and Beans were the only ones not attempting to seduce or flatter the poor woman. They had abandoned the drinking game and were now making small talk amongst themselves. Evelyn had shared a few stories about the Germans bombing London and how terrifying it was. Pally was in the process of now sharing what his father did in Chicago and was explaining to Emma and Evelyn on what a White Sox game back home was like. The conversation on what home was like in the States made men like Mills and the others homesick. Beans wondered how his family back home was doing. He had received some letters from his mother and from his younger brother, Charlie, who couldn't seem to wait until he was of the age to join the service. Beans didn't know how to express to him that war isn't as glorious as young men like himself were led to believe. Seeing Al die was the most horrific thing that he had ever seen and was still processing the event. He could see men like Mills getting more and more quiet and more reserved with each mission he flew. He wondered how he ever was going to make it through this war, and he knew men like Willie, while he never showed it, or alluded to it, felt the same way. At the end of the night, the men were getting ready to leave, and as the men were walking out of the pub and ready to escort the two women back to their home, Mills was surprised that Evelyn seemed to be walking next to him, and continued to. Once outside, Evelyn made small talk with Mills, and soon, Mills was getting the impression that she was somewhat attracted to him. Mills found Evelyn very attractive and felt comforted by her presence, even if she wasn't talking to him. As the men began walking towards Emma's house, Evelyn asked if Mills had someone waiting for him back home. Mills commented that he just had family back home waiting for him. Evelyn asked him why he didn't have a woman waiting for him, and Mills replied that he didn't know and he wasn't concerned with finding a woman at the time. He was more worried about working, earning whatever he could to support his family and support himself. Mills then shared a little bit about working at the Aria Motor Company, and then shared his plans in starting his own construction company once the war was over. Evelyn then explained that she always wanted to see America, specifically New York City, since it was the only thing that she really knew about America from movies and depictions and books that she read. Mills then explained that while he had never been to New York City himself, he guessed that it wasn't as interesting as it was in the movies. In his mind, places like Detroit, Chicago, and other northern cities had just as much to offer. 
Tommy, who watched Mills and Evelyn talking, gave Willie a nudge. What? Willie asked. I think Mills found himself a girl, Tommy said. Well, good for him. She clearly has adultation men. Perfect for him. Yeah. You know what? Maybe I need to grow some stubble. I think it's this baby face that I have that makes women not flock to me like they do to Mills. He's got that stubble that makes him look like a, you know, a man, Tommy said, gliding his hands down his cheek. Yeah, that's what you need, Tommy, Willie mocked. What? You think that's it? Tommy asked. I think it's, uh, I think it's that big old honker you got in your face, Willie jabbed. Hey, women like this old honker because they think to themselves, if his nose is big, then what else is big, right? Tommy joked, jabbing Willie with a huge smile on his face. Hearing the conversation, Skippy and Emma turned around, and that's when Emma made a joke regarding Tommy's childish American ways of thinking, to which Willie gave Tommy a grin. When the group arrived at Emma's house and said their final goodbyes, that's when Evelyn gave Mills a kiss on his cheek and waved him goodbye as she walked into the house, leaving a stunned Mills standing among his crewmates. They would return back to Thurlow, making light of Mills' success with Emma's bombshell cousin. Mills, however, was more shocked than anyone and walked back with a huge smile gleaming on his face. Back in Newmarket, Jack was more inebriated than he had ever been before. He felt like he weighed half of his body weight and his surroundings seemed to be moving half the speed that he was. Parnell and the others were heavily intoxicated as well, but not nearly to the degree that Jack was. The men were finishing things up as they headed back to the troop truck, and soon to be brought back to base. Parnell finished playing a game of darts with some of the other officers, and O'Brien, who had now become Jack's personal assistant in helping him function like a human, stood next to Jack and was pulling out another cigarette to give to Jack. Brian. Brian. I'm here, buddy. What is it? O'Brien asked, handing Jack a lit cigarette. I'm... I'm drunk. Jack slurred. Yes, you are. How does it feel? O'Brien asked. It, it feels like... Um, it feels like I'm Peter Pan. Jack said, putting the cigarette in his mouth. Is that a good thing? O'Brien asked. It's... It's... Uh, it is a magical thing. Jack replied. That's the spirit. You needed to loosen up. O'Brien said. If you say so, I just get tired of being, you know, the... The, the bad guy. You know, I don't belong here. I, I thought I wanted to be in war, but this is not what I thought. I wanted civil war. You know, cavalry type stuff. Listen, Jack, I don't know piss about the American Civil War, and for the most part, history itself, but I think this is a lot better than what those guys went through. Not to mention, you know, we could be in the infantry, you know, sitting in some muddy fucking foxhole, day in and day out getting shot at but here we are drinking having a good time we have a mission once every what two three sometimes on a good week four days that's not bad we got lucky as has anyone ever told you that your opto optimism is gravingly annoying no can't say i have O'Brien responded just before Parnell and the others returned to the table and helped Jack exit the pub. Jack was so drunk that the men had to hoist him into the bed of the truck and soon they were on their way back to Thurlow. Once there, 
Joe, O'Brien, Sheila, and Koga helped to carry Jack's body into the hut as Jack had fallen asleep. Seeing this, the boss, who had just arrived back at the hut himself, was livid. Rosie and Andy both looked stunned by Jack's drunken state. Hey, did you guys have fun? Joe asked the boss after seeing his face. I did. What the hell happened? The boss asked. He's drunk. Is it that hard of a mystery? Joe retorted. Who got him that drunk? Asked the boss. What do you mean? O'Brien asked as they laid Jack on his bed. Jack doesn't drink like that by himself. Who did it? It was that Parnell guy? The boss interrogated. Don't worry about it. He had a good time tonight. Stop trying to control things, Joe said. Excuse me? If we get selected for a mission tomorrow, he's not going to be in flyworthy condition, the boss said. We're not going on a mission tomorrow. Can you just relax? He had fun tonight. Stop being a prick, Joe said. Listen, cocksucker, are we going to have to go outside and settle this problem? Koka asked, walking towards the boss. What did you call me? The boss yelled, puffing out his chest and walking towards Koka. Oh, please throw some iron. I'm in a good fucking fighting mood tonight, Sheila said, taking his jacket off. Joe stood next to Koka as he faced the boss. Amidst the confrontation, Jack was awoken by the yelling and sat up at his bed and said, Uh, hello there. The men all fell silent as Jack slowly got himself out of his bed and stood up, barely able to keep himself balanced as he did so. Jack, who were you with tonight? The boss asked. These guys and Parnell's guys. See, I thought so. Jack, go back to bed and sleep that off. No, Jack said, setting the boss. What? The boss asked. I said no. I had one of the best nights of my life tonight. I actually had fun. And you know what? I realized something. Jack, 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 Jack. Think about what you're going to say before you say it. Rosie called out in a panicked voice. I think that you are a fucking prick, boss. In fact, I think that you've lost your damn mind ever since Berlin. You know, you try to control everything and you blame everyone for everything. But at the end of the day, Al died because he got shot and he lost a ton of blood. Not because of Skimpy. Cobb died because a fighter got a lucky shot. And fuck you for blaming Rosie. You messed his head up. He nearly killed another officer in Haverhill by beating his face in. The boss was stunned by this information and turned around to see Rosie and realized that the bloody-faced officer who they had found laying on the street outside of the pub was due to Rosie. And if you want a co-pilot who can be a second chief, that's just simply because you can't be your own chief to the crew. A crew only needs one chief. Fuck you. I said it. Fuck you. Now, I feel so much better. Fight if you want to. I'm going to bed. A good night. Jack then flung himself onto the bed, leaving the boss and the others stunned at Jack's liquid courage-filled rant. Thank you for listening to episode 13 of Snafu a historical fiction podcast depicting the average life of a bomber crew in World War II. If you would like more information about the podcast, please visit our website and our Patreon page. Both links are down in the show notes. This podcast is produced by Canso 34 Studios. 
a DIY project helping to raise awareness to the brave young men who sacrificed their lives in the skies of Europe in World War II. I hope we do it justice. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned next week for episode 14 of Snafu, Frozen.